Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 121 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 121, Scott and I are going to do a handful of things. We're going to talk about the scrambled meat postmortem. Uh, or actually, I guess I am a little bit. We'll talk a, a bit about the next uh, PNW quizzing meet that's upcoming. It is in Madras, Oregon on October 15th. And we're then going to dive into the various ways to generate valid question sets and there's uh, and talk about the implications around each approach. And then we're going to kind of circle back onto a topic from last episode. Uh, we talked about the third age of quizzing or sort of highlighted the concept of what a third age of quizzing could look like. And oddly, it was a very popular episode in terms of number of people who were listening to it and the responses that we got from it. So we've got a couple of responses we'll talk through as well there and see where the conversation goes. So with all that said, let's dive right in. Uh, scrambled meat postmortem. So of course, the scrambled meat was enormous fun, lots of fellowship, reconnection time for veterans and good introductions and, you know, bridge building opportunities for rookies. Um, we do we do scramble a little bit differently sort of in the post-COVID uh, universe than we did prior, and, and I, I refer to it as sort of classic uh, scramble. This kind of harkens back to the what scramble was like way back in the, yes, the, the days of yesteryear when scramble was first getting invented. So basically, you just show up to the meet. There's no registration. And then once you're there, the first 20 minutes of the meet, uh, basically, you get to form up into teams and you can form into anything that you want to, but there's certain scoring incentives to uh, scrambling up your team. So your team gets an extra 20 points uh, if you've got quizzers from at least two different churches or 20 extra points if you've got at least one rookie, non-adult rookie. Uh, you get another 20 points if you've got an adult who is quizzing as part of your team who did not quiz as a youth. So there's another incentive there. And then we've got, you know, bumps in bonuses for third and fourth quizzer bonuses. So it kind of encourages uh, folks to try to develop a diverse sort of eclectic team of people and gives them an opportunity to meet, meet each other from different churches and so forth. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, so the next meet, like I was mentioning, is going to be in Madras, Oregon. It is the, you know, for everybody except Madras, it's the longest drive. And, you know, people like to be, you know, not complaining, but we're kind of like, ooh, wow, that's a long drive. But just keep in mind, Madras does this all the time for every other meet. So um, this is, I think, the it, it's important to have at least one meet a year in Madras, because I think for the rest of the district, we... Uh, we can have a healthy dose of um, sympathy for how much driving Madras has to do uh, to be able to get to the meets, uh, the other meets uh, of the season. So registration deadline for this meet is two weeks prior. Actually, for every meet, it's two weeks prior, which means that it is on Saturday, October 1st. Uh, and this particular meet is particularly important to get your registration in on time because Madras is going to try to host people who need housing. So please make sure that you're registering with the housing bit of information on, uh, add in notes if there's anybody who has any kind of specific needs for housing or whatnot, make sure that that's in there. Make sure you got your team slotted uh, in the right way. Um, we're going to try to run three rooms. We may go more or less than that, more or less than that, depending on the number of teams. So we just need all of that information in there. Uh, so if you run into any questions or problems or can't figure out the registration system, please email me. Uh, everybody should uh, be able to have that done before the deadline 
Uh, but if, uh, if you run into any problems, please let me know, and I would be very, very glad to step in and help in whatever way I can. The meet starts at 8 a.m. on Saturday, so that's a little bit earlier of a start than what we're used to, but not egregiously so, because we're going to try to get everything in and completed on that Saturday. And if you can stay over Saturday evening, uh, it would be fantastic, because then we get to worship together. Uh, on Sunday morning uh, in Madras before we make uh, our drives back midday or in the afternoon on Sunday. All right, so that's it for announcements. Let's dive into the various ways to generate valid question sets. So Scott, you want to take this away? Yeah, so um, I wonder if this topic will be a surprise to people, uh, to some people who want, who might think that there's one valid way to do it. Um, but there are multiple valid ways to do it. So that's an important point is we're only going to be talking about valid ways. And so all of these are equally allowable via what the rulebook currently says. Um, but I wanted to talk through the different methods and what the implications are of each. To start, we will level set on some terminology. So I will use the term question set proportion, which basically means um, what are the proportions of each question type from a written question set? So. We know that interrogatives will be the largest proportion in the question set, and probably chapter references will be the next largest. But I think a, a nice takeaway from this bit of terminology is that between chapter references and chapter verse references, almost every written question set will have more chapter reference questions. So if you were just randomly pulling questions out of this set, you would get more chapter reference than you would get chapter verse. Um, question set proportions, the key takeaway there is... Um, the proportion of the written questions could have an impact, right? Um, so in a scenario where question type, minimums and maximums don't exist, and we are just pulling random questions from the material, then the proportion of questions that get asked would be the proportion of question types that are written. The other bit of terminology is question type distribution proportion. So that is the minimums and the maximums that we have defined. And they are defined so that quizzers can expect at least a certain amount of questions of a given type and no more than a certain type. Um, there are many potential motivations for having these minimums and maximums, but it's really to convey a set of information to the quizzers to give them certainty, and then they can decide how they want to prepare based off of that certain information. Moving on from here, we've got the two different types of material. There's narrative and epistle material, different minimums and maximums for each. I did some quick addition. I didn't know this, but the minimums and the maximums are identical for both years, uh, the total. Um, did you know this, Griffin? Um, yeah, I don't know that if that was planned or not. I mean, I know that just because I, I have to code that into CBQZ, but um, I don't know that it sure. necessarily has to be that way, but it, it turns out that it is that way. Right. I don't think it has to be that way at all. Um, obviously, there are different minimums and maximums per type that make up the total. But the totals equal 19 for the minimums and 30. I found that interesting, and I did not know that off the top of my head. So now let's get into the methods. Um, and I really came up with three methods, and then we'll get to some takeaways. So the method A is centered around the question type maximum. So this method would be you randomly select questions um, equal to the maximum numbers each question type. So let's look at um, the maximums for the narrative year um, for interrogatives would be 14. So you would randomly select 14 interrogatives from your question set, randomly select two multiple answers, six reference questions, three quotes, four finish, and four situations. Then from there, 
you will randomize the order of them, um, which may or may not be necessary, right? If you're just, ran depending on how you're randomly selecting the questions in the first place, you may not need to randomize the order of them. Um, but then you have to make sure that in the numbered questions, so one through 20, you hit the minimum. Um, so you have to make sure you do that um, after you generate the order. And then um, for once the minimums are hit for all of your A's and B's um, and your one numbered question um, that you get flexibility on, right? Because 19 are predetermined for you, one is not. Um, for, for the rest of those, the A's and B's and that one question that you have flexibility, um, you just randomly get one from. But the proportions asked here are determined by the question type maximum um, because that's how you decided to pick your initial set, right? Um, and so after your 19 minimums, which are locked in, right? You have to meet those minimums regardless of the method that you choose to generate these question sets. You have to meet the minimums. And so those will always be the same. Um, but for your extras, the, the proportions of the question types that get asked there will be determined by the question type distribute maxims and not by the proportion of written types in the question. Do you have any questions, Griffin, or follow-ups or anything? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I think it, it is important to talk about, like, when we're talking about question sets here, we're not talking about the question set pool of all questions, but rather generating valid quizzes, I guess. might I, So that might be a, a maybe a terminology flex a little bit here that, that I'd sort of throw out there. Yeah, so here, let me just use some terminology to, to differentiate. Question set is the total question, you know, three to 6,000 or whatever. And then I'll call it a quiz set, which is the set of questions that is asked for a specific one quiz. So this first method is, I have dubbed it question type maximums. That's kind of the overriding principle here. Um, and we're focusing on the, the questions that we have flexed them. So across all of these methods of generating question sets, those 19 minimums aren't going to change, right? We um, For narrative year, we have to have eight interrogs. It doesn't matter the method that we generate the question set, the quiz set, we will have eight interrogs. However, um, we have up to 14 interrogatives and the method that we use to generate this quiz set will affect whether or not there's eight to 14 and any number in between of those interrogatives. So again, this first method is question type is driven by question type maximum. The second method is driven by question type minimum. So again, we're randomly selecting questions for each type, but this time we're selecting a number that equals the minimums and not a number that equals. Because we've selected a number that meets the minimums, once we randomly generate the order, we don't have to make sure, do any checks to make sure that we can hit the minimums. Um, we just once we gener randomly generate the order, we ask those questions, one through 19, for the numbered question. And then for the rest, so any A's and B's that pop up, and then that 20th question, we can randomly get questions from the, from our question set and then ask them, um, making sure that we don't exceed the maximum. If we do this for our flexible questions, randomly getting questions from the question set, the proportion asked will match the proportions written and not the proportions of the maximum. And those are different, right? Yeah, very. Um, well, potentially right, very. Right. So in this scenario, we probably, um, I haven't done the math, but you'll probably get more interrogatives and chapter reference questions relative to the other types than you would if you randomly selected a, set, um, a quiz set of questions um, equal to the types of the question type maximum. Um, so this, this method is, called, is, I'm dubbing it question type minimums. 
Um, and the takeaway here is that the question set proportions reign, whereas for the first method, the question type maxims reign. Any follow-ups? You may get into this, but I mean, part of this is also... Well, okay, maybe, yeah, yeah this is, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm thinking probably two steps ahead, because, I mean, it is a range, so it's sort of like, do you key off the, the maximums first, do you key off the minimums first, and I mean, I definitely have my opinions about both of those being suboptimal, uh, but let's maybe circle back on that, uh, circle back to that after you get through the list. Absolutely. So then my third method, and I'm not saying that there are only three methods, but these are the kind of the three that I came up with. Um, the third method is driven by question set proportion. So what you do is you just randomly select question. Um, say, I need a question one. And while base, it's going to be based off of the proportions of the written questions. So you're most likely to get an interrogative. So you're probably going to get an interrogative. Um, and then with each question type that you select, you then have to ask the question. Um, the two questions, can we hit the minimums still, right? If I select an interrogative for the first 18 question, um, I can't hit the minimum of other types. So I need to know at what point I can no longer hit all of our minimums. We've got to hit those. Um, and then our second question is, have we, right? So at the point that I hit 14 interrogatives in a narrative year, I can't ask any. But we're asking these quest questions every time because we're just pulling a random question for one and a random question for two and a random question for three and a random question for 16. Um, the takeaway here is just like the question type minimums method, um, the question set proportions are going to rain heavily. Um, but unlike method B, the question type minimums, the order of the types is going to be influenced by, would not influence, it will go according to the written proportion. Whereas for the method B, the question type minimums, we grabbed all of the minimums um, and then randomized the order. So it's random within that proportion. Whereas for this method C, the question set proportions method, you're very likely to get all eight of your narrative interrogatives pretty early in the quiz. You're very unlikely to hear them asked on questions 15. Um, whereas in B, um, the question type minimums method, your, your, your probability of getting an interrogative on question one is is um, eight divided by 19, right? And then if it gets asked, then it's seven divided by eight um, for the next one. That That's driving when you see the types. So my my three main takeaways from all of this is that the question types that get asked within the minimums are locked in, right? Doesn't matter the method you use, you will get the minimum in those numbered questions. But the order of the question types um, how they occur on those numbered questions is heavily influenced by the methods that you use when generating that question set, right? Um, whether it's based off of the minimums or the maximums or the question set proportions is going to change the order of the types as they arise within those numbered. Um, and then my third takeaway is the method that you choose is going to change the distribution or the proportions asked in that flexible, right? So that's your 20th numbered question, which doesn't have to occur on question 20, right? It could occur on question one, depending on the method, but then all of your A's. And I think the last time I ran data, usually got about 22 to 24 questions quiz on average. Um, and so that's what, three to five questions kind of flexible to be generated or picked from. And the type that you use makes a big difference, right? If that ends up being... Um, a quote versus an interrogative versus a CR versus a C CVR versus a situation, 
can have an enormous impact to the outcome of a quiz, which granted, the quizzers in advance don't know how those flexible types are going to be allocated. They, they have no idea. Um, but you could be using a method that will deterministically advantage certain types of preparation, disadvantage other types of, that's what I got, Griffin. Cool. Well, yeah. And I mean, and this is a great, you know, high level, you know, intro to some of these concepts for folks who haven't, you know, necessarily tried to dive into the algorithms to, to uh, deal with this out. But I mean, part of the, part of the issue here is like, how do you handle subtypes within like larger brackets? So like references, right? You've got CR, CVR, multiple answer, CR, multiple answer, CVR. How do you select within that subtype for references that need to be between, let's say, three and six for, you know, a narrative year, let's say. Well, how do you select between three and six of these four different subtypes? Uh, you could say, well, okay, I want to select randomly based on the subtype itself, which means that you're going to see a relatively generally equal distribution of those four subtypes within the reference question selected. But is that reasonable, right? Um, if a question set itself has, let's say, very, very heavy uh, chapter reference kind of things, whether multiple answer or not, and then it's got, you know, pretty light uh, CVRs or vice versa, right? And then you're asking questions uh, randomly, equally randomly, or uh, let's say neutrally randomly across the four subtypes, you're going to bias uh, your sample against the overall set. But maybe that's important. Maybe that's valuable. I mean, that's kind of the thing. All of these ways are valid, but then it's a question of saying, well, what what evokes the best part of the mission, right? Um, let's say you have, I mean, I can't imagine this to be the case, but let's say you have a particular uh, question set that's based on a particular material set for a year, right? And that, uh, and let's say you've got question writers who are really good and they've, read, they've written every valid and good question uh, that is possible from the material, um, across whatever type it happens to be, right? Uh, and let's say as a result of that material, it's very chapter reference heavy, very light chapter verse uh, uh, reference. Um, and I, of course, again, this doesn't really make a lot of sense because CVRs are, I mean, you can write not so great CVRs, but you can write a whole bunch of them, right? Cause he, what, not a great CVR, but you can write it pretty easily. But nevertheless, let's say it's, it's, just for argument's sake, let's say it's very, very heavy CR. Do you want that reflected in your quiz set or not, right? And there's there's a lot of implications and questions behind that. The other thing to consider, right, is depending upon your district, you might have waiting rules. So in P&W, we have waiting rules all the way up until the very, uh, nearly the very end of our, our season. And what I mean by waiting rules is, let's say it's, you know, we've got the material split up over the course of the season. As people are memorizing more, more of the chapters are included in a in an upcoming quiz meet, right? So this upcoming quiz meet in, in Madras is going to be chapters one through six. Uh, I think it's one through uh, six. I'm hoping, I hope I didn't just make a mistake there, but let's say it's one through six, right? Now, this meet is the first meet of the year, so 
it, questions are evenly pulled from chapters one through six. The meat after that, let's just say hypothetically, it's uh, chapters one through nine that are going to be part of that second meat. Well, so that's chapters seven, eight, and nine of new material that represent one third of the total pool of questions from in terms of like questions available in the question set to pull from. However, we've decided in PNW that we want to pull roughly 50% of our questions from new material for that second meet. Ergo, the one third of new material is overrepresented on purpose and makes up 50% of the overall questions. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, well then how does that dynamic, and we've made this a, this we make this a functional rule within PNW. So our quizzes are invalid if they don't do this, right? So we, we need to make sure that our quizzes do this sort of waiting thing throughout the course of the year. Okay, so if we're going to do that, then what question types appear in the, let's say, call it the old material, the two-thirds of the material, that is going to be de-emphasized to 50%, and how many of the types are going to be, minimums and maximums are going to occur in the last third that's going to be overrepresented to 50%, right? Uh, and how do we do that in a way that is reasonable and fair to all quizzers in a predictable, reasonable fashion? And, and then, of course, there's all kinds of ways to do this that is legal from the from the terms of, like, you know, the rulebook plus our own PNW um, weighting system. But how do you do it in a way that is is reasonable and fair? One One option that you could do. If you're writing algorithms for this, I highly recommend you don't do this, right? But one algorithm you could put together is to say, okay, their, uh, their uh, interrogatives are between 8 and 14. Okay, so find the mean of 8 and 14 and round to the nearest whole integer and say, great, that's literally the number of interrogatives we're going to have. And then do that for multiple answers. Of course, we have one to two multiple answers, therefore it's 1.5. So then we're always going to have, let's say, if you're rounding down, we're always going to have one and only one multiple answer. Now, I think this is horrible to do, but it is a legal uh, algorithm to generate these quizzes. I think the reason it's horrible is because it would enable quizzers to, based on tracking of questions, you could get really good at figuring out what question number 17 is. You know, um, Now, how much of a big deal is that? I don't know. It's probably not the biggest big deal in the universe, um, but it could be some big deal. And I just, I don't, I don't know. I think having some of the randomicity here adds to, adds to the layer of unpredictability and adds to the flavor of the competition. But again, that's a judgment call, not based on any sort of rules, but sort of like, what do I infer may actually be more supportive of the mission or not? Right. And I remember when in PNW, um, the CBQZ software prioritized, um, it took into account asked count of the question, right? In an attempt to ask a, a more diverse set of questions, right? Because if we had a set of 5,000 questions, um, not all of those will get asked by the end of the year, right? Right. And so I believe we, we said like, hey, let's try to like look at questions that haven't been asked yet and ask them. Well, the effect of that is that as the year goes on, the weighting gets even heavier towards the new, new material because the odds that a question in already existing material, like the odds that it's been asked already, is pretty high. And so we found that actually between meets, we want to reset those counts back to zero. So it still holds within a given meet that, and I have no idea of this, you know, what the current state is, but we, we want within a given meet, 
if an interrogative gets asked, that identical interrogative is very unlikely to be asked again, right? Um, but we wanted to reset the counts um, between each meet so that each meet was kind of its own new thing. And while our aim was still 50% of the, of the questions would come from the new material, um, if we used question count as part of the question, the quiz set generation algorithm, I think we were getting like above 60, 70, 80% of the questions from the new. Right. Yeah. Ultimately the, the bottom line here, it, it is, it's the Amazon problem. Amazon seems like a really easy website to re-implement from scratch. And I've, I've heard a lot of developers think like, well, let's just create our own Amazon. And they don't realize like, no, there's layers and layers and layers and layers of complexity. The more you, the, the rabbit hole never ends. It's, it's a, it's an extremely complex system, uh, but it looks easy on the surface. Uh, quiz generation is similar to that, although maybe not quite to that same extreme where the algorithm seems pretty simple on the surface, but when you start implementing it, it's very easy to stop short of the full implication of the algorithm and end up with something that's subpar. Um, so I, I encourage people, if you are a programmer, I definitely encourage you to give it a try. Like I, I encourage more approaches to algorithm development rather than fewer and diversification of those algorithms. And if, if you can publish them open source, right? I, well, I don't even, I don't, Actually, I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't want to do that. But, um, you know, publish those algorithms open source. But, like, recognize once you get it done, there's there's probably ways to actually think, oh, wait, but I didn't include, I didn't encounter this other idea or I didn't include this sort of contingency. Uh, and it just keeps going with depth and depth and depth. Right. Like, it, it reminds me of the Ecumenical Council of Port Orchard where we yeah, discussed yeah, right. question difficulty, right? Because I've been a quizzer in a quiz where you get a finish these two from Matthew that starts with sir, you know, or teacher comma, and then you get a CVR from verse 54 and there's nine possible CVRs in the verse. And you're like, okay, I know this was all random, but this quiz just had a bunch of the hardest questions. I would love it if um, we didn't see such extremes of difficulty in a quiz. Um, I encourage you to pull on that thread and say like, oh, what would happen if I tried to gauge question difficulty and um, implemented that in a quiz set generating algorithm? And what, what defines difficulty for different quizzers? Um, it's an interesting exercise. But this also reminds me of like, when I'm writing questions, it is easier to write good chapter references than good chapter verse reference. I, and I'm, I'm kind of using good in air quotes because a lot of the learned um, knowledge about good versus bad um, is tribal and not necessarily codified in the rule book. Um, but it's just easier to write. There's more good chapter references than good chapter verse references. And I would say the proportion might even be like 70%, 30%, or at least 60%, 40%. Well, the question then becomes for a quizzer, if I'm preparing for reference questions, should I expect that asked proportion, again, within our the minimums and the maximums of re reference questions to reflect the fact that there's probably more written chapter reference question than chapter verse reference. That's a fascinating question because two of the best question type specialists I've seen in internationals have been on reference questions um, and specifically chapter reference questions. Mark in 2005 and Josiah in 2015. And if the person implementing the, qu the quiz set generating algorithm for internationals decided that they didn't want the proportions ask within reference questions to reflect the written proportions of reference questions, it would have had a massive effect on the scores of them. Um, and 
I'm not saying that one approach is better or worse than the other one, right? Because I think both are allowable and valid per the rule book. Um, but you could have a massive effect on scores and the outcome of when by making that decision that has to be made at the end of the day. Right. And that's why I sort of feel like, actually, it's not sort of, I feel reasonably strongly that the algorithm needs to, for quiz generation, needs to be open source and it needs to be auditable and it needs to be known well in advance of a meet, right? So I agree. You know, this, this notion of saying like, uh, you know, how many people are going to actually look at an algorithm and inspect it? Probably not that many, but at least the idea of it should at least be plausibly inspectable prior to a meet without changes at the last minute right before the meet. Right. Um, and this can all be done. You know, these last minute changes right before a meet could be done completely innocently, but they're suboptimal because if you're planning a particular strategy of a particular type of, uh, let's say, type distribution based on the material that you have, because those things don't overlap perfectly. Right. As, as Scott discussed, there's a disconnect a necessary mathematical disconnect between the questions that are well-written coming from the material and the type distribution that does not flex with the material changes, other than, let's say, narrative to epistle, right? But again, right. the underlying material from, let's say, just take epistles, you know, all together, from epistle year to epistle year, the question type distribution does not change, the material does, therefore, the types of questions written based on that material will flex in that global question set that then is used to pull into quiz sets. And so you're going to have to make choices around how you pull that together. And there are many, many ways to do that legally. Um, and most of them are bad, right? So like, here's, here's an example. What if I wrote an algorithm that says start sequentially through the types with the minimums, select t questions of that minimum sequentially through the chapters, then start over again and go through the maximums. So in other words, ints come first, interrogatives come first. It, it, and, I, and when I say first, I just mean they're defined first in the rule book, right? We go interrogatives, multiple answers, reference, quotes, finishes, situation. Let's say that's the, that's the general order, right? Uh, so we're going to start with, situ or sorry, interrogatives. We're going to select eight interrogatives, the first one from chapter one, the second one from chapter two, all the way up through chapter eight. Let's assuming we're doing full material, the full, you know, 20 questions from Acts. And then we'll go to the multiple answer question one, because that's the minimum, and that's going to be from chapter nine and sequentially all the way through, right? You could generate a quiz and you could generate quizzes for all of your quizzes in a meet and they'd be perfectly legally valid that way, right? But it would be a disaster, <laughs> right? Um, so it's perfectly legal, but yet everyone would know exactly, like, can you imagine a, a meet like that? Can you imagine internationals if that was was how we created our quizzes? There would be this giant uproar, and yet we would be following exactly the letter of the rules. Right, and I love your idea that whatever the method is, it should be uh, public, right? And people should expect it. Because I remember back when um, Carnegie Mellon um, would help generate quiz software um, within the Western PA district that was often used. And people pretty quickly figured out that there was a maximum number of interrogatives that would start with um, an interrogative word. Right, right. And so, you know, once you heard like the fourth one or whatever, or the third one, then you could just up your jumps. And so um, the point here is not that I think that that method is not great. It's that 
that shouldn't be something that people have to figure out. Um, it should be public, whatever the method chosen is, because it does have a direct effect on um, both prep and execution. Um, and I think if it's public, we can make better decisions about what it is that we want. Because I think we've, we've settled. We don't want the questions asked in a quiz to go in alphabetical order of type or in order of type as defined in the rule book or in um, chapter and verse order, right? We don't want any of those things, but all of those things are technically allowable. Um, and yeah, it's just going to be more useful if the methods used by whoever generating a meet um, is public and then we can have um, discussion and commentary. Right. Another thing to keep in mind, last point here, at least for me, you can insert in your, as you're, as you're developing your algorithms here, you can insert different stages of randomization if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. you know, for example, I could start by saying, I'm going to select my questions, you know, top down through the question list and then randomize whatever I, I pick, right? Or I can start by selecting my types, randomizing those types per question, and then picking questions, and then maybe randomizing again at the end, or, you know, any combination thereof, like how you select through, and I don't know how to describe this, because like, everything, it's, it's, a, it's like a tapestry of threads, and like, if you pull on one thread, it unravels a different thread somewhere else. But the idea being that, you know, like... On question number one, do I ask a reference question or not? And if I ask a ref ref reference question, which kind of subtype do I select? And is that just the first question that I select and then it gets randomized within, say, the first 10 or 15 or 20 questions? Uh, because you have to be careful about that. I mean, certainly within the first 20 questions, you can randomize the first 20 questions pulled and everything is fine. But as you progress further down the list of questions that you pull, you have to be careful to say like, well... I definitely want, I, I not just definitely want to, I must ensure that the quiz will hit its minimums for question types. And I definitely also need to ensure it doesn't exceed its maximums. And those constraints uh, have a very interesting play against each other around when and how you randomize both either your types, your distributions within the types, the questions that you actually pull, the chapters that you're pulling from, the algorithm gets very complicated very quickly. And if you don't deal with that complexity, uh, you know, so I'll say honestly, right? If you try to cut corners on that complexity, it will become obvious to quizzers in the resulting output of the quizzes. And if, uh, you know, if, if somebody were to you know, notice your algorithm, get a hold of your algorithm ahead of time, or even worse, practice with your algorithm ahead of time, and another group wasn't able to practice with your algorithm ahead of time, that's going to end up biasing the results in favor of the people who are able to practice with the algorithm ahead of time. Exactly. A couple points here. We're using the term algorithm. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's not fancy. It's just a method of doing something, right? It's like, what process of steps am I going to go through to get an end result? Um, and then a bit on randomness. One incorrect way of thinking about randomness is that if I randomly, like, if I randomize the order of question types in a quiz, I won't get two chapter references in a row, or I won't get three finishes in a row. Well, the nature of true randomness is that you will get these runs, right? You will get seven interrogative questions in a row. You will get three situation questions in a row. And it's actually a way for you to see if something actually isn't being random. If you listen to an entire meet or an entire year of questions and you never hear two situation questions one after the other, 
that's a big clue that the question the quiz sets were probably not generated randomly they were probably generated by a human who was like hey i don't want two questions in a row um whether or not that's a good motivation or not right um randomness will give you these runs right you might get three questions from the same verse five questions in a row from the same chapter um that's just like randomness will result in that some percentage yeah and um, as th that also kind of leads into another thing like do you do you want to create a a policy because it's not a rule but do you want to create a policy in your algorithm that says I actually don't want to have two questions of ex of the exact same type back to back because you can certainly do that, right? You can design an algorithm that is totally random and yet like whatever the, the exact previous type is, is simply not part of the randomization of what could happen in the in the follow-up type. You can also do that with, with chapters, right? To say like, okay, well, I just asked a question from chapter three, so I'm going to randomly select from all the other available chapters, but not chapter three for the next question. I mean, again, you don't have to do those things. It's perfectly valid not to do those things. If you do those things, again, also perfectly valid, which one is better, right? And if people know ahead of time what your, what your algorithm does, like if, 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 you, if you know the algorithm just selected a, you know, a chapter reference from chapter three, and you know, absolutely, chapter three will not be the next question. Like, like you will not get a question from chapter three for the very next question. Now, beyond that, who knows? It's fair game. But it, those questions are that those those questions of algorithm or those design choices of algorithm play a massive role to the individual quizzer going through the competition. The other thing is there's sort of a an unspoken rule that if I select a question from a particular verse, let's say chapter three, verse four, I should strive not to select another question from the same verse, chapter three, verse four in the same quiz, right? So CBQZ d does this. It will attempt to, it doesn't prevent that from happening, but it will weight that probability lower. So the idea that if there's a, ver you know, if you get just got a question from chapter three, verse four, it's less likely than, than pure random that you will get another question from three, four in that quiz. Now, some districts don't have that. Um, other districts actually enforce this by rule to say like, well, if we just asked a question from three, four, we will not ask another question from three, four for the rest of the quiz. All of those decisions are valid in terms of all three of those conditions or four of those conditions are valid in terms of the rule book but you need to know what that is long before the meet uh, to be able to have a fair meet. Right, I believe it's Western Canada that has a rule for their district that um, you will only have a, one question in a given quiz from a, um, and they have made that a rule. Everybody knows it's the case, right? Um, I remember there, there were times where I'd be quiz mastering and in the same quiz in PNW, we would have a finished question and a quote on the exact same verse. And oftentimes when I asked the second one, someone would be like, when the question was done and the ruling was done, all that, someone would be like, did we want that? Or like, is that allowable? Um, and I would always say like, yes, it's allowable. And then after the quiz, you can have the conversation like, is that something that, right? Like, I love the randomness that just because you heard a finish from, you know, Matthew 14, four, um, when you're jumping on a quote, 
it doesn't mean that you would rather guess verse five versus verse four if you jumped on that edge of the right like to me it should be randomly appearing um but if a decision has been made when generating the quiz sets that should be something known in advance right by everybody um and then another way that quest quiz set generation can I don't know if fail is the right word, but I remember in 2016 International, among all of the A's and B's, I think it was 8% were from one single verse, Ooh. which which, which like shows something was up, right? Because I don't know, I can't remember what material it was, but there's probably, what, 600 verses? And so the probability of a, an A or B coming from a verse should be 1 over 600 every single time. And it was, in fact, 8% or something ridiculous. Um, and if there are... Basically, you should expose how you are generating quizzes in advance because I would bet you that that was not intended um, and probably could have caught if the methods were public. Yeah. But even if they weren't, I mean, that's the thing. Even if it wasn't caught, the idea of publishing a method ahead of time removes the ability for somebody to specialize on that particular method, right? So, like, if... Um, Let's say CBQZ was not open source, because uh, it is, and let's say it was only ever used by PNW, right? Um, and let's say it had certain quirks about how its algorithm, right? Like, I I actually strove really, really hard to try to remove every quirk possible uh, in this in in the generation. But let's say they, let's say I I didn't do that, and I and I had a, a a more minimalist approach to the algorithm, right? So less complexity in the algorithm, so it has various quirks. And let's say then P and W quizzers get really good at that particular algorithm, right? They become comfortable with it, right? They um, they don't necessarily have any way of of predicting it, but they they get comfortable with that style. Nobody else in Quizzingdom does this, and then uh, IBQ decides they're going to use CBQZ to generate quizzes. Well, that gives P and W a pretty substantial advantage. I mean, not you know, I wouldn't say it's you know, a 50% advantage, but it's, it's an advantage that's greater than 1%. I mean, let's call it like, I don't know, 4% advantage or something. But I mean, at internationals, especially when you get into finals, 4% is a big deal. And I, and I don't know, maybe it's not 4%. It's probably less than 4%, but it's some amount of advantage, right? Uh, that's not fair taking that into, uh, internationals, right? Similarly, it would be that there's a certain sort of je ne sais quoi is certain um, style of a particular question set. Let's say a particular a question set written by some, and this is not to you know throw any throw throw anybody under the bus, but let's say there's there's question writers from West Can and question writers from PNW, and we have slightly different styles of writing questions. If we were to write a question set from PNW that was not exposed and not shared and not used by anybody except PNW, and then that question set showed up at internationals, it would give an advantage to PNW. And that's not cool, right? So all of this sort of plays a role in in what we're talking about here. Yep. Um, I don't know if there's a way for us to bring it around and say, is this level of potential complexity most uh, optimal for age three or not? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I think it needs to be, right? Like, well, okay, to a degree or not. I think there are certain things that we can say lead to better missional outcomes versus others, right? Being able to predict with certainty the question types um, is probably mildly anti-missional. Being able to predict specific questions 
is hyper anti-missional, right? Um, so like, I don't want people to be able to analyze the algorithm and gain some sort of competitive, like, like serious competitive advantage as a result of it, right? I want people to look at the algorithm and say, yeah, this is good. This is good enough to the point where there's no reason for me to study it. Like I should study the material more than the algorithm. Um, and I actually not even that at all. I would like the algorithm to be to a point where people look at the algorithm and say, there is no point to studying this algorithm. It is better to spend a hundred percent of my time looking at the material, not the algorithm. Nevertheless, I want the algorithm to be public so that people can come to that conclusion. They have the opportunity to analyze it. Right. And so in that universe, I think that kind of leads into, you know, age three, where whatever algorithm, algorithm or algorithms, plural, uh, exist out there, I want them to be all transparent so that people have it. And so, I mean, to your point, Scott, maybe age three has a rule that says here, here are the rules that must be followed to generate a quiz. Fine. And there's not that many of them. And then to say like, okay, but then whatever algorithm you use needs to be public ahead of time by a certain amount of time and analyzable by other people and at least plausibly analyzable by other people. Fine. And then it might be a good idea to have sort of a, you know, best practices document around like, well, here are some considerations, like here are ways that you can randomize or not randomize. Here are ways that you can work through the distributions and so forth. And uh, say like, you know, these are, these are opinions around what may end up being slightly more missional, slightly less missional, and then let people decide with, um, within that framework. Right. That makes sense. Well, and so speaking of which, let's um, chasse over to uh, talking a little bit more about the third age of quizzing. So in the last episode, episode 120, uh, we broached the idea of this third age of quizzing. So we talked about the history of Bible quizzing. We talked about what could be the future of Bible quizzing in its current incantation. And I, I explained this theory that I have around ages of quizzing, where I feel like the first age of quizzing was Youth for Christ. It was sort of singular, non-denominational, Youth for Christ oriented. It started to wane uh, because of some waning things going on within youth for, the, the youth, for, youth for Christ movement. And that's when the second age of quizzing uh, started up. And Scott walked through various reasons why the second age of quizzing is now and has been for a while, probably 20 plus years, maybe 25 years. It kind of depends on which uh, which program we're talking about. Some programs it's been in decline for a little bit less, like 15 years. But there has been a, tip, a, a typically multi-decade, uh, fairly standard decline in the health of quizzing across all of the denominations that are conducting quizzing right now, and even the non-denominational programs. And so in the second age of quizzing, there this decline continues. And uh, so the theory being, if we don't do anything about this, eventually quizzing will collapse, um, you know, everywhere. And so I talked about this idea of the third age of quizzing, uh, this reconstitution of quizzing that changes away from the denominationalism movement that was able to inject a certain amount of health into quizzing in the 60s, 70s, well, mostly 70s uh, and 80s and uh, was good for its time, but the time has sort of come and passed now. And actually the, denomina the denominationalism of quizzing is actually holding quizzing back. And so what can we do about this? What is the future of quizzing uh, such that we can actually maintain what I call the essence of quizzing, 
the true core essence of quizzing, not turn it into like a memorization bowl or a Bible bowl or anything like that. Not that those things are bad, uh, but that's not what quizzing is. And similarly, like Awana, Awana is a great program, but I don't want to see quizzing turn into sort of a, just a more advanced version of Awana, right? I want quizzing to maintain the essence of quizzing because I think that goes to its mission. It's, it's incredibly powerful, uh, missional, capabilities, uh, its discipleship uh, capabilities is based on the essence of quizzing. So how do we, how do we get there? And that was kind of how we started talking about the third age of quizzing. Well, it turns out that this episode, the the last episode, uh, 120 of Inside Quizzing was actually the most listened to episode of uh, Inside Quizzing history, which is kind of cool and scary and all the, all the things. Um, so we actually received a, a handful of questions coming back from uh, folks uh, regarding that episode. And I want to highlight two of them. And I'm going to dive into these things. And Scott, love to get your feedback as we as we go through here. But the first um, uh, and, and interestingly enough, the both of these uh, the both of these folks responding here that I'm going to highlight, neither one of them come from our program. They're both other programs uh, in the sort of the wider universe of quizzingdom, which is fantastic. So I love the fact that this podcast is reaching beyond just our own program, both at the district level and at the international level, and actually um, trying to establish communication across all of these different uh, denominational second age of quizzing programs. So, and, and interestingly enough, we're all in this together it's it's really kind of interesting all of these programs are in decline it's just there are some programs i won't say names but there are some programs that are very healthy relative to other programs but they're still in decline even though they're very healthy right so they have a long sort of you know call it 10 plus years or more of decline that they can stomach before they collapse. There are other programs that are within two or three years of collapse and some that are even closer than that. So anyway, we'll just dive into some of these uh, or two of the two of the responses that we got and go into more detail. So the first one comes from Connie, who is a coach from uh, UPCI, the United Pentecostal Church International a Bible quizzing program, and she says, or asks the following, uh, she says, uh, I find your third age ideas interesting. One thing I was fascinated to hear was your idea to make it more fun for those who are not in quizzing, uh, but could come to a quiz meet and still participate in some way. I was hoping you could elaborate on how you think that could be executed. So uh, yeah, we went up, we went fairly long on last week's episode, so we didn't... Um, explain all that much about this concept of of zero prep quizzers uh and and i define that as quizzers who literally know nothing about quizzing who get invited the morning of a quiz meet to show up and get integrated into a team uh is there a way that we can provide a quizzing program that is meaningful for them to participate in without jeopardizing the essence of quizzing and the generally you know the more encouraging memorization, right? Because if we if we lower the barrier to entry at the lower end of prep, of eventually getting to zero prep, I think that's positive, but I don't want to jeopardize the, uh, the encouragement of higher levels of prep at the higher end, right? So the gist of this idea is to allow quizzers uh, via explicit pre-meet opt-in on a per-meet basis to use reference materials while quizzing. Right. So the idea being that you could say, okay, 
if you're going to show up to this meet and you want to be a zero prep quizzer, you can optionally decide for this particular meet, I'm going to be labeled as a zero prep quizzer. We got to come up with a way better name than this. But um, the idea being that you then can use reference materials while quizzing, but anyone who does this, who opt it, opts into this, will, won't be able to uh, earn anything other than base points for their team, right? So for example, if quizzing out is four questions, an open book quizzer might be limited to only two questions and they wouldn't get any quiz out bonuses. They wouldn't get, say, third quizzer bonuses or, you know, team bonuses for quiz outs or anything like that, right? So I'm still working on various different models, but... Um, the other way that we can also deal with this is to say that questions of different difficulties and, and not to go into per, you know, su uh, individual type deltas. Well, okay, let me, how, how to describe this. I'm, when I say question difficulty, I mean by type, not by different questions within a single type, right? So to basically say like an interrogative is generally speaking, going to be easier than to finish the first question in our quiz universe because finish the verse requires word perfectness, uh, interrogatives don't. Also interrogatives typically require less information. Uh, they can be answered a little bit more quickly. So in that very, very general example, we could say, okay, interrogatives are maybe only worth one point and finish the verses are worth two points, except if you are an open book quizzer, a finish the verse would only be worth one point, right? There, there are things like this. Now, again, uh, I, I am still wrestling with all of the, I'm actually building simulations of this sort of stuff and running these simulations and trying to predict outcomes based on these simulations, which is maybe a fool's errand because I'm writing this with computer software and humans aren't computer software and, tr and I'm trying to predict missional outcomes that are based on motivations. So <laughs> yeah, this is probably a fool's errand of a fool's errand, but I'm still wrestling with this information and wrestling with the, the, this sort of stuff. But uh, that's the general, just at least where I'm at currently. So I've said a whole lot of stuff. Scott, what are your thoughts on this or anything related to it? I mean, I think the overriding desire is for quizzing to be a useful and appealing endeavor for a wider range of preparation. And you are still seeking to reward to have a um, a level of reward that is um, relative to the level of preparation, right? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. You're, you're not desiring to have someone be able to open book quiz and get a ninety. That that's not the desire here, right? But I think we can all agree that if someone hasn't memorized, I don't know, twenty verses, um, it's not very appealing to participate in the competition unless you kind of just deal with the competition part of it and then enjoy the rest of the meet event. Right. Right. So it's just kind of expanding, ex expanding the appeal of the experience. Right. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, it, it's important to, to note that I think one of the missional out, I mean, the mission of encouraging the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, we should never cap that motivation, right? We should never get to a point of saying, well, I've memorized a certain amount of hours or a certain amount of effort. And based on where I am, there is no value in, in memorizing more, right? Or memorizing in greater depth or, you know, investing more time in prep, right? We never want to get to that point. Um, therefore, we want to always allow some sort of mechanism such that 
always more increased investment in memorization and prep work will result in some kind of point differential at the end. Now it might be very, very tiny, right? And you can have absolutely have diminishing returns, but those returns never approach zero. Here's a question. I don't know if it's a useful question, but if there was a company that needed to hire an employee and they said, we are hiring software developers, they've cast a very wide net and might get a very wide set of applicants, but it might be that on average, the applicants are not very, um, not super interested, right? Because the the description is so general, right? And mm -hmm. casting a wide net. Whereas instead, if a company said, we are hiring um, a Perl backend developer for um, a financial product and you need to be um, a regex expert, a regular expressions. They're casting an extremely narrow net, but the average applicant would probably be much more in position. Is there a risk for trying to increase I mean, maybe me boiling down your idea to increasing the the appeal of Bible quizzing to be not the right way of summing it up. But like, is there a risk of making it appealing to so wide a potential range of participants that it's on average less appealing to all? <laughs> Or right. the people that join are less interested. Yeah, and I think there definitely is a risk there. We definitely don't want quizzing to become youth group, right? Um, a broadly appeal to everyone, right? Now, I think quizzing ought to, by its nature, broadly appeal to everyone because I think everyone needs to be memorizing some amount of scripture. Now, some people are going to be better at it than others. Some are going to be more interested in it than others. I get that, right? Some people are just not motivated motivated by the com uh, competitional aspect of quizzing. That's fair, right? Totally get that. Um, but I definitely don't want to see quizzing become sort of um, a youth group. You know, uh, come as you are, stay as you are. Uh, you don't have to put any, put in any effort into it. And that's all, you know, this future quizzing thing becomes because I think that removes the essence of quizzing, right? And I think that's something that we need to protect. Um, I think it also, we, we don't, we don't want to go in that direction because it's anti-missional by on its surface, right? We would actually be discouraging people from memorizing the most if we fell into that camp. But I don't think, I don't think those two outcomes are mutually exclusive. I don't think it is necessarily true that by lowering the bar to entry, we are necessarily going to be turning people away from quizzing or or causing it to be demotivational. Uh, I think actually quite the opposite. And we used, um, I think we used it uh, an analogy in episode 120 of like a pickup uh, baseball game, right? Where it's like, even if you don't really know anything about baseball, uh, and you're not very good and you've never practiced before and somebody says, oh, hey, come to our game and, you know, play a bit. Uh, you can play and get something out of it, right? And I would agree. It's more um, increasing the appeal at the very low end to like begin participating, but it's not watering down the potential attractiveness of working really hard and memorizing a lot, right? At the like higher end. of Right. All right, well, let's move on to the next question here. So this comes from Charles, and Charles is an official uh, with the Free Methodist Bible Quizzing Program, uh, and he writes as follows. I was listening to the episode on the third age of quizzing, and I was wondering, assuming we agree that this is where we want to end up, how do we get uh, from where we are now to there? 
And then he follows up a, I guess, a supplemental question is, do we agree this is where we should be heading? It seems to me like it's an overall good vision. Um, so, uh, cool. Uh, thanks for your support, Charles. Um, so I actually want to take those two questions and kind of split them apart and invert them. So I'm going to start with the uh, part one is going to be the second question. Uh, a supplemental question is, do we agree that this is where we should be heading? Uh, it seems like an overall good vision. So... I, I think this is a critical question, and I think we should always be asking it. So even if we are successful in creating the third age of quizzing and we're able to unify various different quizzing programs and we're able to grow quizzing and see a robust, healthy, growing quizzing to movement internationally, I think we should always be asking, uh, is this where where are we heading and is this a good destination right so so even the the this not the catalyst but the inspiration for even beginning to think about the third age of quizzing is analyzing where are we at with the second age of quizzing and where are we heading and are we happy with its direction and i think where we're heading universally it seems to me is eventual collapse after many years of progressive decline. And I think we don't want to go there. <laughs> I think I think we want to head in a different direction to that. So is the third age of quizzing something that that can turn that around? I hope it can be. Uh, but anyway, I think this is ultimately wherever we go, this is a critical question. We should always be asking it. Like, do we agree this is where we want to go? Do we, I think we can all agree that we want quizzing to grow. The question is, is the structure and the ideas that we've been proposing for the third age of quizzing, is this the thing that will cause, you know, quizzing to actually grow? And I think ultimately it depends on what we really believe the mission and purpose of quizzing is, right? Um, and again, I'll say, I think it's, it's to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. If we really believe that that is the mission, then everything that we do and envision can be evaluated against that mission, right? So for example, if we're going to organize around denominationalism and doing so results in more quizzers memorizing more verses, then we should actually do that, right? Um, like I don't inherently have any dislike of denominationalism in terms of quizzing on like what's the word like on its face or 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 by that sort of nature uh i actually don't like denominationalism in quizzing because i think it's anti-missional right now if if somebody could come along and create a denominational program that actually does cause more quizzers to memorize more verses and it grows quizzing then i'd kind of be happy to get behind that program, right? But then I would ask the question, well, is it the denominationalism of that program that's actually causing it to grow or something else inherent in that design of, of that program that's causing it to grow? And maybe to say, well, it, can that be replicated? Is there some component of denominational, denominationalism that's actually a factor in the growth of that program? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But if it could be shown that that is a factor and it's an important factor, then I'd be like, okay, great. I want to get behind that program and support it. But I don't believe this is the case. I believe, well, not just 20 years ago, I think 40 years ago, denominationalism helped grow the second age of quizzing. And it was necessary uh, 40 years ago. I actually think it's a hindrance now. But regardless, I think we always have to come back to that question of like, where, where are we heading? Re let's be honest. And 
is that where we want to go? And are what, what do we need to do to actually change that direction? So a solution to this needs to contain what I'd call multiple concurrently developed parts, right? So it's very easy, like, you know, Scott and I are rule books nerds. We have a lot of friends who are rule books nerds. We love to go into, you know, increasingly pedantic detail about rules, but I don't know that changing the rules alone or putting so much focus on the rules actually makes a giant difference here. I think it does have a contributing value. Absolutely. No question about it. Right. Um, which is why we nerd out on these things so much. But I think really to have a, th- a, a third age of quizzing that is successful and actually turns quizzing around into something that, that systemically grows, I think you have to have multiple different parts of that solution. One is there really has to be discipleship making within the program itself, not so much discipleship making from a Christian perspective, but from a quizzing growth perspective. So in other words, you need evangelism of quizzing and to take this out of sort of Christian speak into the world of sort of secular business speak, there needs to be quizzing marketing, advertising, and sales, right? Where nobody's buying anything, but rather the sale of converting somebody into somebody who is now engaged in quizzing, right? So we need to get very specific about why quizzing should be a thing. I think we've talked about that in past episodes, but I think the third age of quizzing to be successful needs to get very specific about why quizzing needs to exist. And what are the implications for Christendom with or without quizzing? I think those are profound and important. We need to wrestle with those and we need to be transparent about those things. We need to have organic internal growth, which is like quizzers inviting friends, coaches inviting neighbors, that kind of stuff, and growing programs that way. We need to have external local growth, which is getting new churches to engage in a, say, a region of quizzing. Uh, And then we need external regional growth, which is essentially planting new regions in areas that are, let's say, unquizzed. Uh, And that's that's a big ask. But I think we need to do all of those things. We need to have ease of understanding from the outside. Have you ever tried to explain quizzing to somebody who's never experienced quizzing? It's very difficult to actually, I mean, you can describe it in in a handful of words, but then you get these puzzled looks on people's faces. And then there's also a kind of a a disbelief once they understand what you're actually saying about how the program works and and the outcomes of the program there's this period of of like well it can't be what you're describing because that just seems impossible there's no way you're going to get an average kid to memorize hundreds of verses and it's like well no actually you can um and we do uh, and there's this weird thing, there's this weird obstacle to, to overcome. So I think we need ease of understanding from the outside. We need ease of initial participation. So just like we were talking about before, the sort of the zero prep quizzer, we need to be able to design a program that people with zero experience or exposure can show up and get at least something out of it. They can they can initially participate from zero rather than having to learn something before, right? Um, and then an engagement growth path to be able to go from, say, the first meet rookie to an excited engaged proponent of quizzing. We need better ways of engaging volunteers and 
and, and structuring our volunteers. We need effective, efficient, decentralized, meaning locally empowered operational uh, leadership systems, uh, stuff like coach empowerment and support, regional operations in terms of meeting and planning and executing local leadership support, um, and then regional rules implementations. It's sort of like customizations of rules, but it's more like localized settings, options of a shared rule set tailored around what a particular region is dealing with at a particular time. And then flip that around, we also need to have effective, efficient, centralized growth initiatives. So like a rules framework that can be implemented at the regional level differently, customized. And again, I don't want to use the word customized, but they can you can change settings at the local level to put it in sort of tech speak. And then in terms of additional tech, we need tools, materials, meaningful support for all forms of evangelism. We need technology, questions, equipment. And then lastly, although at least lastly in my list, but probably not lastly in terms of the program, I think we need financial support. You know, if you're going to plant a new district, a new region in an area of the country that is unquizzed presently, you need to have some level of financial support to be able to sort of juice that district and get them started. Simultaneously, we need to have a reduction of cost at all levels. And we also need to have increasing levels of collaboration at all levels, which means we need to have all levels have radical transparency and a willingness to let everyone have an equal voice and an equal ability to lead based on their interest. All right. So that was a whole bunch of stuff. Scott, what are your thoughts? I have one question. I don't know if we've talked about this, but looking this is a very general question, right? Like looking at the the distribution of people that currently participate in CMA Bible quizzing, there's probably a range of people from potentially one end of the spectrum is like a chicken little, the sky is falling, CMA quizzing is going to be dead tomorrow. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum will not believe that CMA quizzing until the day that they put on a quiz meet and zero people show up. Um, how, like, I guess, what do you think the the path to grasping an actual reality is for all people within that range. Um, and then how useful is grasping of that reality to um, a meaningful change in health or trajectory of Bible quizzing? Could you describe the question a little bit, a little bit more in detail? I'm not, I think I understand what you're asking, but I don't want to make an assumption. Basically what I'm saying is, I think the health of Bible quizzing is worse than a decent number of people or decent percentage of people um, believe. And because of that, it would be difficult to convince that group um, that any change is necessary. Yeah, that's very true. Well, okay, let me, well, okay, it's sort of true. I think there's kind of three groups of people. There are people who don't believe there's a problem at all, genuinely don't believe that there's a problem at all. Um who come from districts that are actually quite strong and healthy. And I say, when I say district, I just mean a geographical region that, that has an organization encompassing that geographical region. And let's say that region is large, and I, I don't mean geographically, um, but large in terms of number of quizzers, and they've got a very healthy, vibrant program. It's still in decline you know, if you're looking, let's say, where was it at 20 years ago versus versus now, that's like, okay, there's a decline. But a slow decline over 20 years in a group that's very large is, it's easily ignorable. It's, it's hidden, right? 
Um, and so people from that particular vantage point could say, well, we don't have a problem here. Yeah, yeah, we've been in decline for 20 years, but you know, we're still very healthy, we're still very strong, and all of those things can be true, right? So they're going to look at, say, a major change to quizzing and be generally against it, potentially, because they're going to look at it and say, but we don't see the the urgency here, right? Like, we still have another 10 years of roadmap, you know, of, of steady decline because before we become, um, you know, in a, a collapse state. And I should be really clear about when I talk about collapse. I don't mean, when I say quizzing, a, qu a particular quizzing program collapses, I don't necessarily mean it ceases to exist. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean that you put on a meet and zero people show up, although <laughs> that can definitely happen, right? Um, certain regions in, you know, looking at CMA quizzing, there were certain regions that, that existed 20 years ago, 30 years ago that don't exist now. And they literally zero quizzing happens there, right? Um, I don't know of great new strides in creating quizzing from, you know, ex nihilo, from nothing, right? Um, I, I see expansion of quizzing in certain areas, but it feels like the never-ending entropy of the universe, where it's like, yeah, you can have reverse entropy in certain areas because it's drawing from energy from other areas, but ultimately the system as a whole, it, entropy is always increasing in the universe, right? And so similarly, when I look at quizzing, if I say, you know, yeah, we can see growth in quizzing in certain localized areas, but if you look systemically across the entire thing, it's always in decline no matter where you look, right? Um, as long as you're looking um, in a large enough scope, right? Um, so, yeah, so that's that's kind of group one. Group two are people that notice the decline, see the decline, and see... Oh, sorry, let, let me... Let me I, I should finish my previous thought. When I say collapse, I don't mean districts cease to exist, although that can actually happen. And I don't mean that, say, CMA quizzing will cease to exist, although certainly that will eventually happen on this traje trajectory. What I mean by collapse is I'm saying the way we do quizzing can't happen in the same way anymore. There just isn't enough people to do it. It becomes a an increasingly small, and actually, let me rephrase that, it becomes a decreasingly active, decreasingly large, um, ever smaller club of people that have a hobby together that doesn't really make much influence outside of those people. It doesn't have an impact on Christendom, right? Um, it becomes increasingly irrelevant and eventually has sort of a sort of a heat death of the universe uh, end. And that heat death doesn't happen quickly. Uh, what I'm, what I'm really more saying, it's sort of like, um, I'm using a lot of astrophysics terms here, but imagine a main sequence star, it eventually goes Nova and then collapses into a white dwarf and the white dwarf eventually, uh, slowly burns out over a very, 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 very long period of time. Right. But that Nova event still happens. And that's what I'm talking about with quizzing. Quizzing, when I say collapse, is that I'm referring to this Nova, Nova event that will eventually result in some sort of dwarf star that lives on for decades and decades, but it will never be again the star that it once was. And I want to try to save quizzing before we get to that point. So I think going back to that, that group of people that we were talking about, group two in my list of three groups are people who see the decline of quizzing, they see it because they feel it in their own districts and they know this collapse is coming, right? They, they experience it and they're terrified of it and they don't want the collapse to happen. But the way that they 
address the impending collapse, the way that they feel that, that we need to prevent the collapse is to double down on what we've been doing the last 20 or 30 years, right? Um, they believe that the way to save quizzing is to actually do more of what we've already been doing uh, these last 20 years in the decline, and we just need to do it harder or more, and that will turn quizzing around. Um, I think some of them may fear that they don't know how to turn quizzing around. And so they're like, well, what I know is what we're doing. So let's just do what we're doing more. And, and I totally get that, right? It can be overwhelming thinking through all of these things. Um, but I think some of them are like generally, be genuinely believe that, yeah, the way to save quizzing is to just do more of what we've been doing, just invest more, right? Um, but I, I disagree that that's a, 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 you know, the pathway forward, but I totally respect that point of view. Right. And then there's the third group. I think the third group is the, uh, I just don't see a problem. I think things are fine the way they are. I think that third group is actually really small at this point. It didn't used to be, you know, five or six years ago, I think that third group was actually a majority, but I think that third group has converted into the second group rather dramatically. And I think people are at a, I think a majority of people now are actually in that second group who are noticing that, that we're in systemic decline, have been for 20 plus years. We need to do something pretty significantly different to turn it around and are wrestling with what those things could be and the implications of what those things could be. It's all very interesting, right? Because I think I would imagine that regardless of where anyone falls on that spectrum, they would agree that there is a decline of, and I think you are probably most susceptible to thinking the decline is less than it is, the healthier your current district is, um, which is probably not the greatest data point to look at. Right, indeed. Well, and the, but the thing is, there are still people within very healthy programs who actually see the writing on the wall, right? So I was, I was talking to somebody... I won't say the uh, which program it was, but it was a it was a person in a different quizzing organization than ours, uh, a denominational program, but a different denomination. And that particular denomination is is very healthy uh, in terms of overall numbers, and uh, still very strong in terms of both local, regional, and national quizzing. Uh, but it, when when the two of us were talking, he was very frank about like and and very open about like yeah, we've seen systemic slow. But systemic, you know, unstopped, uncorrected decline in our quizzing program over the last 20, 30 years. And we're not anywhere near systemic collapse yet. But unless we do something, we will be right. And he was he was very, you know, honest about it. He was like, you know, I can I can I can extrapolate 10 years into the future, 15 years into the future. I'm not sure exactly where it's going to be. But yeah, 10 or 15 years in the future, our very healthy program right now is going to collapse unless we do something different. Um, so even in the very healthy areas, I think there are people who can look at the data and look at the reality and say, you know, yeah, something something needs to change here pretty dramatically. Uh, and it's not just rules and it's not just, you know, trying to talk to friends about joining quizzing. Something very, very big and systemic has to change if we're going to save quizzing. And I think an interesting point to make is it's not necessarily an indictment on the way anyone is currently doing. No, right? absolutely not. Yeah. So, I mean, I think and, and I'll, I'll, I, just, I think I said it before, but I'll say it again if I have. I think the denominationalism of age two was 
absolutely necessary in the 70s and 80s, mostly in the 80s, to bring about the sustainability of quizzing from the Youth for Christ movement, right? Like, it was useful at, for its time and its purpose. I think just we're in a different universe now. Fascinating to me, just, you know, the different ways that it's required to bring about change to any type of organization or even individual. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the part two of uh, Charles's uh, email here. He said, assuming we agree that this is where we want to end up, uh, how do we get there from where we are now? And this is this is not easy. This is this is an incredibly important question. And I honestly, I don't know. Um, I have a four step idea of how to get there, but I don't I'm not super confident that this is the right way forward. But I think it, it, it's it's the mode that I'm operating under right now. And I'm very, very, very open to suggestions <laughs> for something different. But here's here's where I'm operating. So step one. I think we need to work toward agreeing that this is where we want to end up. And where, when I say this, I'm saying, you know, third age. I think we need to work toward agreeing that the third age is where we, where we want to end, right? And that goes back to Charles's first, well, his second question that we tackled first. How do we get there? I think we need more open, frank, really blunt conversations. I think we need to be honest with each other. But I think more than that, we need to be honest with ourselves. I know we love quizzing, right? We all love quizzing. I think we need to be honest about the fact that quizzing needs to change to survive. Um, and I think we all want quizzing to survive. Um, I think we need to get real. Uh, if we hang on to the structures of the second age and we continue to put all our focus and energy into it, we're just going to get continued decline. And eventually quizzing is going to Nova, right? It's going to collapse. We need to let go of the illusion of control that the second age gives the its current leaders like i feel like certain leaders not all not all but i feel like certain leaders in the second age of quizzing have this illusion of control that they they want to hang on even more tight to the way second age is structured so that they can maintain this this illusion of control i think we need to just be honest and say it's just an illusion um and ultimately i think we also need to be honest and say like hey if the third age isn't the solution, then what is the solution? Like propose an alternative. Doing the same thing is going to give us the same results, which is continued slow decline, eventual collapse. So if third age isn't the solution, what can we do? Because <laughs> we, we really do need to do something. Now, I definitely don't want to suggest that we should do third age simply because it's the only option in town. Um, I definitely want to wrestle with that and say, like, is there something even better? Is there is there something that we can do that that's going to work even more effectively than the third age idea? Because if if that if that can exist, I definitely want to hear about it. Right. But anyway, that's step one. I just more open, frank, blunt, truthful conversations about where things are and where things are going. Then step two is I think we need to build the call it the skeleton of the third age, uh, which is to say not build out the entire program, but build out something that people have some specificity around because it's not reasonable to expect people to agree to join something that's very vague. You know, you say, well, there's this big bubble of, of second age and there's this other big bubble of third age and we should go there. And you're like, well, okay, maybe in principle that sounds nice, but like, what is, what is that? <laughs> you know, like you need some specificity there for people to, to, to be able to latch on to. Um, 
At the same time, you have to be careful about that because you don't want to define everything in isolation, right? So, you know, I definitely don't want the third age to be like Scott or Griffin or Scott and Griffin go off into a cabin in the woods or like uh, monks at, in a monastery and we come up with everything in isolation in totality and then you know as like Moses coming down from Sinai say here is the third age of quizzing and you should adopt it perfectly as is that I, I don't think that's a good idea I think we definitely need to have collaboration along the way but at the same time design by committee is one of the best ways to kill innovation and development so there needs to be some sort of balance between like i definitely want to have everyone's voice included in the conversation and at the same time not have designed by committee or designed by the mob right there does need to be sort of call them spikes of design skeletons and then get feedback and wrestle with that feedback and then iterate and you know develop and develop and develop so that's step two then step three is experiment with what we come up with right and then if uh, advertise the results market the results you know or, or or well that's maybe not the right word broadcast the results i guess is probably the better way to say it so Existing second orgs can try running a meet via the third age and see what happens, right? And that's a way to kind of see, well, do these rules hold up? Does this does this even work, right? It's almost like playtesting a new game. Um, we could establish a third age region in a no or low quizzed geography and see, does this work? How effective is it in, in starting up quizzing in a place that doesn't have quizzing right now? We could even consider flipping an existing second age region to third age and see what happens, right? Um, can you get two or more second age regions that are geographically similar, uh, let's say nearby each other, if not overlapping each other, to flip to the third age and then merge and then see what that does in terms of the economies of scale, right? So um, I don't think economies of scale alone saves quizzing, right? So the idea of saying, well, if you've got two geographically overlapping districts of quizzing, we'll just have those two things, two groups merge under one of the two groups and away we go. I think you get economies of scale and there's advantages there, but I don't think that alone saves quizzing. But if we can get two second age regions to flip and merge into a third age, we get the economies of scale along with all of the other skeleton values of the third age. And then maybe we can use that as an experiment, see how that works, iterate on that, and then advertise the results. And then ultimately step four is an open call for the second age orgs to join third age. And then of course, you know, I think there, the sooner the second age org can, the, the sooner any given second age org can join the third age, the sooner they're going to have speaking authority into what quizzing is inevitably going to become. Because like, I, I truly believe second age quizzing is on an inevitable decline to collapse. The sooner a second age org converts to third age, the sooner they will have a voice into what the third age is. Uh, and therefore, you know, over time, eventually anybody who is, you know, hangs on to the second age without, you know, making some sort of change is eventually going to collapse. So you want to, and eventually going to be forced to, you know, adopt third age because it's going to be the only game in town. Therefore you want to do that sooner rather than later so that you have a voice in shaping 
how the third age grows and matures and changes and all that kind of stuff. Now, those are the four steps that I have, but I think there's 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 ultimately a step zero, which is what we've been doing through this podcast, which is, you know, build relationships, collaborate and develop trust because without trust, no second age org will let go of their legacy structures, right? There no second age org is going to say, "Okay, great, we're going to give up everything that we are for this third age idea." unless they trust they they have relationships that are built on trust with the people who are collaborating together in this third age movement right and so what are we trusting i think we're trusting true missional focus of leaders ultimately based on their fruits based on their actions and that takes time and communication so i know again a whole lot of brain dump here um scott what are your what are your thoughts i'm not sure what to add um i think it's very interesting how you talked about you don't want a new organization to come into existence because a very, very small number of people just like designed it by themselves. While at the same time, you don't want a design by 300 people. Um, and I think it's an interesting, I mean, it's not an exercise, right? It's interesting to try to strike the most useful balance. Um, we were discussing what is the best way to determine representation within a given, we'll call it a quiz district, but we're trying to think of districts not along geographic, like traditional CMA, geographical, whatever boundaries. Um, but like if you have an organization of people, you know, it's kind of the old taxation without representation is tyranny, right? Do we want to, or House of Representatives versus the Senate? Um, do we want to give Rhode Island the same number of votes as Texas or California? Um, but at the same time, do you want to give them, them proportional um, representation, which basically nullifies any participation from them, right? Or any representation. Um, and kind of what we were talking through is if you put in place some sort of representation criteria, like you've attended um, the last four leadership meetings, then you're def kind of you're def you're by default building in representation based off of interest and participation which is kind of exactly what you want to do. Um, and I wonder if something similar um, when designing the age three of quizzing would be similar or, or something similar could be, could be useful where um, people are quote unquote allowed to help design if they meet some bar of interest and participation. Right. Um, and I think that would be interesting as well. Cause it's, it's very similar to um, the rule book committee process right now. Sure. There's a rule book committee that at the end of the day, is like making decisions, but the the people that are most interested in proposing their ideas, writing them out well, putting their input on other people's ideas, you are automatically represented more um, purely by your interest participation, and that's by design. Yeah, indeed. Well, and on that bombshell, we should wrap up. Uh, I want to encourage folks, um, especially folks from outside our program, but really everybody, uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, uh, especially disagreements, we'd very much like to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can also chat with us on Slack in very near real time in the Inside Quizzing uh, channel. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. As always, thanks to Griffin for co-hosting. And thank you, 